Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a special edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. This episode is sponsored by Treliant. In this episode, Maria and I take a deep dive into the changes from the corporate enforcement policy announced in January, as well as the 2023 evaluation of corporate compliance programs. We take a trial lawyer's look at the issue of clawbacks and try to walk through how clawbacks would go through a court case and what it might mean to your internal investigation. I know you'll enjoy this special episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'm thrilled today to have Maria Avanzano with Treliant. And we're going to talk about, explore, and really look at tons of issues around the new 2023 evaluation of corporate compliance programs and the Lisa Monaco and Kenneth Polite speeches, using those and other topics which were made at the ABA White Collars last month. So, Maria, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks so much, Tom. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the written document, which is the updated evaluation of corporate compliance programs, or I'm going to call it the 2023 version. And the speeches by both Polite and Monaco, and then even when Monaco announced the Monaco memo and doctrine back in October, talked about financial incentives. Financial incentives have long been a part of compliance since the original formulation of the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, and even before that. So that part was not new. Companies have to figure out a way to incentivize. But what I saw in the evaluation was an analysis required of not only what is your financial and non-financial incentive program, but the effectiveness. And so what I wanted to explore with you, because of your expertise in compliance, how does a compliance practitioner who's not a comp person, who's not an HR person, begin to think through these things that have traditionally been seen as the role of it. Maria, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs had a lot of new information and new guidance around financial incentive programs. That's not new for compliance. It's been part of a best practices compliance program for at least 15 years. But what is new is what the DOJ wants to see compliance do in terms of analysis of number one, your financial incentive program around compliance. Number two, how effective is it? And three, have you monitored and upgraded it? 
And I, as a compliance officer, wondered how you would actually do that. You go down the hall and talk to HR. Do you go to your corporate compensation department if you have one? How does a compliance practitioner think about something that has traditionally been the role of another corporate function? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have to tell you, all the stuff that the DOJ has been doing since September, October of 2022, they're clearly super busy and they are really serious about financial compensation systems. So it's a great question. I, during my tenure as a chief compliance officer, was always making this argument to management that we needed to have some type of tie between financial compensation and compliance. So there was an incentive. Didn't wasn't always successful in making that, that argument. However, I think this, what the DOJ has come out with is super helpful to compliance officers. And how do they go about it? What I would have done is I would have sat with my HR team and senior leadership. You need to loop in the C-suite. You need to loop in managers and the business and sit with them with the document and say, look, this is here. This is something the DOJ is no longer a best practice to your point, right? This is something that if we were sitting across from the DOJ because we had some allegation of misconduct that rose to that level, we would have to establish that we've done this. And so let's talk about, guys, how we can best accomplish it. And it's absolutely cross-functional. Compliance officers are not going to be able to do this on their own, and they're going to need that buy-in. And frankly, Tom, I think that's the impact that the DOJ intends is to be to now bring in the business, bring in leadership to the conversation to the extent that they weren't already part of that conversation. Maria, my experience as a CEO is HR was a good friend of compliance. They wanted people to follow the policies and procedures of the company. They wanted to be taken very seriously. And I always felt I had an ally in HR, whether it was an investigation, whether it was in drafting policies and procedures or a wide variety of other tasks. I have heard some other commentators say this new language was put in because some CCOs are getting pushback from HR around some of the questions and issues you've raised. What was your experience in the corporate world? Did you find HR to be an ally of your function when you were CCO or how, how did that work for you? Yes, I did find HR to be an ally. Absolutely. We would collaborate on investigations to the extent it was appropriate to do so. We would collaborate on disciplinary steps to take. The pushback, in my experience, really came more from the business in the more traditional sense. And it's not just, I guess it depends on the organization you're in, but depending on your culture, certainly, it's not just HR and compliance that get to make these decisions about how our folks discipline, and certainly how is compensation going to be impacted. And so that's why you need... If you have your CEO or your your global president or however your governance structure looks behind you, and that is behind compliance and behind HR, then I think you're going to be able to go much further. But my experience to answer your question is we were allies, but I've heard the same thing as you. That's not always the case. There's also language about non-financial incentives. And here, once again, nothing really new that companies are supposed to take doing business ethically and in compliance in consideration for promotion But the DOJ also specified something called the local compliance ambassador or the local compliance representative. It can have a wide variety of names, but it's essentially someone outside the United States on the ground who helps the business unit do compliance, and those people need to be rewarded. Were you ever able to put together a program which would look at business leaders, whether they did business ethically or in compliance? 
we try to comply. We call that a compliance champion approach, right? In order to right. expand the bandwidth of the compliance function. And I think that's been a conversation in the compliance community for a very long time, driven mostly by a lack of resources, to be perfectly honest with you about it. And we tried that. Frankly, it didn't work. And I wasn't really a fan of it because to have somebody do compliance off the corner of their desk, the way we did it was we had somebody added on to their day-to-day obligations. And they've got other things that they want to do. And compliance was not their top priority, so it didn't work. What we tried to do was we tried to have training, special trainings for middle managers on doing business with integrity, incorporating compliance and ethics and integrity into their business meetings as part of their conversation with their teams in order to try to bring compliance and ethics into the DNA of what they do on a day-to-day basis. We were a bit successful with that, but as you can imagine, Tom, certainly in your experience, you probably had this too. It depends on the people that you have in those positions and how much buy-in that you get from those individuals. But the compliance ambassador or champion approach, I did not find it to be too successful. Now, if the DOJ is talking about it and compliance officers are communicating that to their business leaders, maybe that will be a way to have that approach be a bit more successful, but I didn't find a lot of success with it. The other area that I wanted to explore with you is something that, once again, we've heard before, but started we started hearing about last year, and that's clawbacks. And the DOJ wants to have financial penalties for individuals and corporations who might engage in bribery. Whether that be, it's unclear if that's the frontline person who may be doing the bribery and corruption or senior executive who is either a part of the program or plan or scheme or someone who looked the other way. Clawbacks, once again, are not new. That's something we've seen in the corporate world, particularly at the senior executive level. They were discussed for some time and they're becoming more prevalent. You're a recovering trial lawyer. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. And I really wanted to explore the mechanics of clawbacks with you because I see a lot of issues. So if I could maybe ask you to put your trial lawyer hat on and say, so I'm Tom Fox Energy Corporation. I come to you, Maria, and I say, I have a senior executive. We believe he's engaged in bribery and corruption. The DOJ wants us to claw back part of his discretionary. We have a contract which allows us to do. Can you file a breach of contract? And what would that entail? So I would have several questions for you, of course. The first of which would be, Are you? have you established, have you substantiated that misconduct that, the, that you're saying occurred, the FCPA type? Is your investigation? Ongoing. Uh, ongoing. So then I'm not sure how you would win in the litigation if you have not established the basis to, for the breach of contract, which I assume your provisions would read that they've engaged in substantiated misconduct. The other concern I would have is if you're a public company, have you, or even if you're not, have you disclosed to the DOJ, voluntarily self-disclosed that you have this internal investigation? And if you're a public company, I suppose you better think about a public disclosure as well. Correct. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's super complicated, Tom, right? It's not as simple as just clawing back some compensation. You've discussed the simple part, because now I want to talk <laughs> about the mechanics of a law. I've always practiced in the great state of Texas, always on the civil side of things. So they move, tend to move a little bit slower than the criminal side of things. And you file your claim in Texas, it's called a petition, and the federal court is called a complaint. You file your complaint, there's an answer from the other side, and then you begin discovery. And so I've wondered, if I'm a defendant, the first thing I'm going to ask for is full investigation, your entire investigation file, including what you've disclosed to the Department of Justice. And then I'm going to start 
investigating on my own. And I may have insurance, which will cover those costs. I may ask you as the company to cover those costs because I'm an executive and I have the right to have my litigation costs covered if the company sues. And it may take me a long time, three years, five years. That's not unheard of in civil litigation in major cities, at least in Texas. And during that time, I may uncover a lot of embarrassing material that a company doesn't want to get out. And at least in Texas, that discovery can all be public unless it's under a protective order by the court. And they're loath to give a protective order because the company doesn't want to be embarrassed. And I'm a, if I'm the criminal defense lawyer, I don't give one flip about <laughs> the company's FCPA investigation, the enforcement action, or any of those other things. And indeed, I might even want to interview the DOJ as part of my discovery if I'm feeling particularly ornery that day. <laughs> so... I was wondering if you could, and sometimes I do as a defense lawyer, just the nature of the job. So the mechanics to me seem like ripe for, I don't want to say misuse because that's not it at all. If you're a criminal defense lawyer, you are obligated to defend your, but for a company trying to navigate a multi-million dollar penalty with the Department of Justice, I just see multiple landmines that could literally blow up in their face. I completely agree with you, and I'm, that's why I'm not so sure that I would file that lawsuit prior to the completion of the investigation. And if the DOJ were to ask, well, why didn't you seek the clawback to comp, I would say because I had not yet established the wrongdoing, and so there was no basis to do that. And I would have opened the door to all of the things that, you know, Tom, you just, you just mentioned. The language that the DOJ's put together, if I recall correctly, at least in the pilot program, maybe not in the ECP, the revised ECP guidance, contemplates an inability to claw back the money, right? They talk, I believe, about a good faith attempt to do so. And I would argue that going through the hoops of the type of litigation that we're talking about, I'm not sure that, I think that's beyond a good faith effort. Really problematic, and I'm not quite sure why a company, without resolving the loss, the uh, investigation, either internally or especially with the DOJ, would file a lawsuit against an executive in order to claw back the compensation. The other area I thought of that could be ripe for concern is a shareholder derivative action against either the board or now senior management on behalf of the board filed in Delaware under the Caremark decision. Because if I, as a criminal defense lawyer, through discovery, have uncovered not only the investigation, but through my own investigation suggested there may be others, then shareholders may step in with yet another claim. And we recently saw a new doctrine under Caremark under the McDonald's decision, which said that corporate officers have a duty of oversight in addition to boards with their Caremark decision. I'm, I don't want to say clawbacks are not appropriate, but I just see a lot of difficulties in implementing them. Going, I, I completely agree with you. Absolutely. There, there are so many issues that need to be thought about with regard to these clawbacks and certainly the timing of any type of any attempt to claw back the compensation, yeah, the other officers of the organization and the board need to be concerned about what's the right time, what's the right process, and are we going to open ourselves up to uh, types of liability by doing so? There's one other question I wanted to explore with you. I certainly understand a clawback against a senior executive who has a discretionary bonus, particularly if you have a contractual right to do that. Now let's move to the frontline person who may have been directly engaged or involved in the bribery scheme who gets a big regular old salary and no bonus. And I have never seen a civil judge claw back salary 
that is sacrosanct literally in every state, whether it's minimum wage salary or much above that. So I wonder if that remedy is even available against someone's salary. Yeah, I would argue that it's probably not. Any organization that attempts to impact someone's regular salary with regard to wrongdoing really ought to check their employment law because there's all kinds, to your point, of employment laws that would protect that. The remedy there is probably separation from the organization, and you probably have the grounds to do that depending on the level of the of the misconduct. But you know, that's what my HR colleagues and I would have done in a situation like that: is just separate from the individual. Let me turn to a couple of other areas from the EECP I wanted to explore with you. Obviously, internal controls are a backbone of every compliance program, but now the DOJ threw in some, I thought, interesting language, which is not simply the design, but it's testing of your internal controls, but it's on an ongoing basis. Once again, going back to the time when you were CCO, did you have either an internal audit function within your company or internal controls function within your company that you could sit down with and begin to talk about, let's test some of these controls, not simply keep them in place? Yes, we had an internal audit group, and I worked very closely with the head of internal audit throughout the year and the chair of the audit committee, frankly, and we would come up with a calendar as far as what they were going to look at for us during the year. And we would be examining controls within the anti-corruption space, economic sanctions, third-party due diligence. And so we were fortunate to have that capability. But there are a lot of organizations that don't necessarily have that function and have a small compliance program. So they're going to find it a little bit challenging to do to do what we did on an ongoing basis and probably what you did when you were sitting in the chair because you probably had access to similar type resources. But not everybody does, and I'm not sure. The DOJ makes statements, comes out with directives and requirements and questions, and I'm not sure that they're fully fully understanding what it's actually like to sit in the chair that you and I both have sat in. Now, I appreciate that Ken Polite was a CEO and has that experience, but it would really be helpful if they would think a little bit more about how it works in practice and what this sort of everyday CCO at a smaller company with limited resources has access to. And then in a final area in the ECP, the 2023 version, It directed the, or at least said that the DOJ would inquire about the pay of those performing investigations, not specifying whether they were in the compliance function, HR function, or other function within a corporation, who made the decision on pay, and also raises bonuses and promotion. To me, this communicates a clear concern that senior management who may be investigated will hold that or lord that over those doing investigations. If you find that to be a fair assessment, does this really mandate you have to carve out who is suggesting or reviewing those pays and bonuses for those investigators? Yeah, it's a fair assessment. And it also goes back to the whole concept of the independence of the compliance function generally. So assuming that it's the compliance team that's going to be conducting those investigations, and closely probably with the legal team, their salaries are determined by, in large measure, by the business leadership. And query if really the audit committee or some other independent outside function should be weighing in on that pay and the comp and just the independence generally. I struggled with that, right, when I was in the seat because you report up in to the GC typically, who then reports up into the CEO, and you're not always aligned in what you want to do. And the CEO finds themselves at times in a position beyond what the DOJ is talking about. 
finds themselves sometimes in a position where they are at the mercy of others who determine their compensation and benefits, et cetera. It makes it, it, makes it challenging to do the job. Marie, we've got a little bit of time left, but I wanted to maybe step back and ask you to your thoughts on the big picture. In January, we had Kenneth Polite announcing changes to the corporate enforcement policy. Then we had the two speeches, Polite and Deputy Attorney General Monaco, and then the change to the changes in the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. I'm going to even throw in, we had a new duty created by the Delaware Court of Chancery, the duty of oversight for corporate executives beyond what they are, the board has under the care mark. And I see all of this as really dynamic changes to the role of the CCO, expanding the role, as we talked about, financial incentives and analyzing that, but also elevating it in importance. And I wondered maybe your thoughts on fairly momentous Q1 of 2023 for, I think, CCOs and the compliance fund. Yes, look, Tom, I agree with you. I agree completely with the sentiment, right? It's it's clearly a, an effort on the part of the DOJ to elevate the compliance function and incorporate it into the organization, make compliance and the function part of the DNA, et cetera. But query if this conversation that you and I are having and that others within our industry, our compliance and legal industry are having, ever makes its way to the business and to the CEO and to the board of directors. And if it doesn't, then this is great for us to have the conversation. It's great for the DOJ to do what they're doing. But unless and until CEOs and boards of directors understand this stuff the way we do, will it, imp- it will it in fact have the same, have the impact that we and the DOJ are hoping that it will have? I don't know how that's possible. So my, my suggestion to CCOs is to take this document, and I wave the document, and I have it over here printed out on my desk, wave it around and sit down, make it, get on the calendar of your CEO and run through it. You have to be having the communication. Otherwise, this is just an exercise for the legal compliance community and the DOJ, and it's not going to have the impact until companies, of course, start getting into trouble. And then and then perhaps the message will be delivered to the CEO, et cetera. But I agree with your sentiment, but I don't know if anybody other than the legal and compliance folks are hearing the message. Maria, that's a great way for us to end this podcast. I wanted to thank you. I really look forward to visiting with you on this, and I hope we can continue this conversation. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this special edition of the FCPA Compliance Report, which has been sponsored by Treliant. We've linked to Treliant in the show notes as well as Maria's uh, LinkedIn profile. She is a great resource for you as a compliance professional. So if you have any questions, I would urge you to follow up uh, with Maria. You can reach her through LinkedIn. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.